never take a job just for money. Like don't follow the cash. Try to play chess, not checkers with your career and think about the skills and the people you meet, the connections you make, the things that are transferable and make you more employable and the lessons that you learn rather than just the short-term pain gain calculation. This week, we have Arash Almasi, National Account Manager at Glassdoor. Arash recounts his signature move to get past gatekeepers, how he was able to cold call his way through Silicon Valley to find a job, and how he manages to keep clients happy. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Arash Almasi. What's you happening? Yes, of course. Gentlemen, how are you? Oh, we're doing great. Chris and I are thrilled, thrilled for you to join us. Coming at us live and direct from Chi-Town. Yes, sir. Shy City. First of all, when did you leave the firm? I was a, I believe, November 2012. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's been a little. It's been a little while. So here, LinkedIn's telling me October 2012. So we're coming up yeah. on on eight years. Yep. Exactly. So we're going to talk about all all that when you started and and how we got to where we are today. But before before we do that, let's kind of bring it back and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what what were you like as a kid. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, I was born uh, in Iran and um, emigrated to Sweden as a refugee uh, of the Iran Iraq War. Uh, it was just like my mom, as a 21 year old, took like a one year old baby and smuggled herself. Uh, well, paid her way through to Turkey, where you didn't need a visa at the time to get to, and because um, of trade agreements, and then smuggled herself to to Sweden, which at the time was accepting refugees, and then uh, met my stepdad, who was visiting from the D.C. area, fell in love, they got married. I have a stepsister, uh, and she was based in uh, in, in the DC area where my stepdad was living and they decided to, uh, we were going to move to the DC area. Uh, so I moved to the States when I was like six years old and thanks to like old eighties movies in Sweden, like the A-Team and Knight Rider and Airwolf, anyone's an Airwolf fan. That's Um, the helicopter. Yeah. That's the, (laughs) that was the Knight Rider. That was the Knight Rider, but in there, but it was a chopter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, not many people know what that is. So shout out to Errol fans, all one of you that may be listening. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I knew English pretty well. So I just like started sixth grade in regular, um, you know, elementary school here and uh, grew up in the D.C. area, uh, went to Mason and uh, got recruited right out of memory or right out of college into memory blue. Wow. That story goes way back. I mean, you were just taking us how you got to Chicago, but you, you did go back before before good old Fairfax County, Virginia. Yeah. That's inspiring. Yeah. yeah. My, my parents are like a classic American immigrant story. Like both came here with like 20 bucks in their pocket and uh, started their own businesses. My mom was a hairstylist and then started her own uh, salon for like 25 years uh, before retiring last year. Uh, my dad has a subcontracting company, does construction work. Um, so like both started from nothing, started their own businesses um, and had that hustle mentality. And um, that's sort of uh, what uh, led me to have the attitude of like not never being afraid of hard work. Like nothing, if anything's going to get in my way, it's not going to be effort. 
Uh, Good. All right, we'll get to that. Well, I want to talk about the immigrant hustle mentality, as you as you call it. But but let's let's talk about. Uh, so what 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 were you like like in high school? Were you a guy who did sports? Did you do a club? Did you have a job? Were you an observer of of you yeah? Know, I was. I definitely always had a job. I was actually a Chipotle <laughs> burrito roller, uh, and uh, as well as working for my dad. Uh, but uh, I I played lacrosse for uh, three years in high school and uh, as a defenseman, and um, I also did karate. I was a second degree black belt and i remember just like you know this whole concept of like doing what's right and not what's easy um probably came from my time at karate where you know my sensei would walk around the dojo before class with the bamboo stick that he would use to like discipline people in the class if they messed up their form or whatever and and like dreading the start of class it was like pretty intense like real not like jeff smith backyard karate it was like real intense japanese karate so i did all that throughout high school I was very like into discipline and and self-improvement um throughout high school and then it, when when did you i think high school is when you kind of figured your way into hey this sales thing i don't know what it is but it might be something i'm interested in, but i don't know what sales is about yeah, I uh, I didn't even really know, like I was conceptualizing these thoughts. Uh, they were crystallizing throughout my nascent childhood, but uh, I was a member of the FBLA uh, and um, they had a, a drive to like, we wanted to fund our trip to some conference and uh, it, we had to sell lollipops. And I think like everybody in, in, the, in the team sold like maybe like you know, maybe 15, 20 lollipops. I sold like 400, like four bags of lollipops. Uh, and just by walking around asking like who had a sweet tooth and, and just, I don't know, I just had a knack. I realized I had a knack for making people feel comfortable, making them want something and then charging them for it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know you knew Lamar Odom. <laughs> That's interesting. So FBLA, for those who don't know, the future business leaders of America. And That's right. And you just decimated the, the, I'm sure you just crushed everyone in terms of the <laughs> volume, but, but did that, we'll come back to that because as you, I know when you got out of school, sales was a kind of on your radar, or not really, certainly not directly, but did you think at the time or how much thought did you give it? You, you know, your teenagers were all kind of in our own world. But did you give any thought into like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I mean, how much thought did you give it? So my guidance counselor, you know, they always ask like, what do you want to, you know, that, that traditional guidance counselor question of what do you want to do when you grow up? I had no idea. I just knew somebody in my class said, oh, I don't know, but I want to make a lot of money. And I was like, yes, I agree with that 100%. <laughs> I have no, I don't, I literally could not care what I do between nine to five, as long as I like make at least six figures. Uh, and so I'll do whatever it is that I can get my hands on. And because uh, everyone's like, oh, you need happiness from, and it's really ironic from like where I am now and what drives me today and what I sell versus like where I started, which was like, I don't like my boss could treat me like crap. I don't care. I just want to make a ton of money. I literally could not give two Fs what happens between nine to five. As long as when I get home at six or 7 PM, I have a, you know, a very nice car and a very nice house. And like, just, and that's part of like the immigrant, like almost like trauma, um, where it's like not having had money growing up made me like that be the sole focus of uh, never wanted to have my kids feel what I felt at times throughout my childhood of like not knowing if I could afford something. I never wanted that to be an issue for my kids. You're the uh, uh, the classic PhD, <laughs> poor, hungry and driven, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not old money by any means. <laughs> right. 
And I think what we'll touch on too, because you know, you're not someone driven intrinsically by money too, though, in the sense of kind of your ethos, at least. Yeah, I remember when Chris in my interview asked me, and I I was afraid that I had answered it incorrectly because I went home and Googled it and I was like, shit, that's not what you're supposed to say in a sales interview. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, oh, are you driven more? Like, do you care more about the love of winning or the fear of losing? And historically, like stereotypically, you're supposed to say, no, I hate losing. I would never like the the hatred I feel of, of like losing drives me and the fear of it drives me to like, and I do have like, I'm very like type A when it comes to my work. I'm anxiety driven. That's why I'm like always reaching out to like right now in my role, I run, I do renewals. And so I'm reaching out to clients six months before their, their contract expires. And I have like spreadsheets and I'm very detail oriented, but at the same time, I am driven by joy and not fear. I feel like the, I, I love winning and sharing that wealth and, and that win with others. I come from, that's why I like really love Steve Kerr and I like love the, I'm from the Bay, you know, I have a lot of ties to the Bay Area. I'm a Bay Area sports fan and, you know, his concept of moving off of joy and everyone pat shares the ball and we all score. And it's, it's, it's that, that sort of like the love of the game and the love of the camaraderie and the love of winning is, is what drives me. And I bring a lot of that to, my clients and my role and my peers and my organization. And that's, that's what sort of drives me. Awesome. Awesome. We'll come want to come back to that, but we got you coming out of high school. So you ended up going to the Mace, George Mason university, right? What, what yes. were you like in college and what'd you major in? And yeah. So, um, I, I really found my passion for like people management and people leadership and these, like, um, I, I was a business major school of management at George Mason. Um, and, uh, uh, I didn't have a specialty. I just took the general like management philosophy or management theory major. And uh, which it's actually pretty difficult because be- when you don't major in something, you have to take like intermediate level courses in everything. So like finance and accounting, everything you have to do. And I got placed into like an advanced HR course and I loved it. I was like the framework and theory of making sure that people um, have a really productive and joyful work environment where they are, um, you know, cared for on a human level. There's equity and inclusion and how to foster a work environment that like lets people become the best version of themselves um, with psychological safety. And, and I love these like giant frameworks around advanced HR management. But then I had an internship my senior year actually in uh, an HR department. And I came to realize it's a lot of paper pushing, records management, data, like all the, the other menial side of HR. I also, at the very end of the day, I, I was, you know, this is, was at a like Fortune 500 um, technology company in Tyson's Corner. And I had access to their uh, payroll as an HR intern. And I saw like, I was like, who is this? Who, what is this title territory account manager that's making more than the head of HR at this company? Um, and why do I know that that person's only 30 years old? And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, what is that person doing? How can I get into that? And uh, that's when I was like, okay, I'm just going to throw a sales focused resume into the George Mason database for students that were looking for jobs. And uh, uh, Eddie actually called me. Eddie McGuire. Eddie, Eddie McLeod. Uh, called me, was like, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? And I was like, no, no, what's up? And he's like, let me talk to you about something. And I was like, Yes, I want to do this. This sounds delightful. That's how I found Memory Blue. All right, well, we'll talk about that. You want walk us through that? So you, so Eddie, Eddie was working for Chris at the time, 
And, and Chris is, I mean, it's amazing that we get find people like you to come work for us. I mean, it's a blessing. So w- w- walk us through that process like, w- or walk us through what you remember from that. Cause I def, I distinctly remember you not being as sold maybe as you were post, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 The, uh, the, the interview was at like an olive garden. <laughs> <laughs> I had a solution for you, man. Chris and I would take our best, our best candidates <laughs> to the Olive Garden yeah. closing down. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was cool. I was like, so I was, you know, I think a couple others have expressed this sentiment, but uh, the fact that your website was is like not the like the most uh, <laughs> on point as it is now back then. And then you took me to an Olive Garden. And the second interview was with Chris at a Silver Diner as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third interview was in this, like, re- it was in the first floor. And I was like, okay, at least I know they have an office and uh, they're, they're legit. But, um, but it was funny. I, I, I remember uh, I had prepped for the phone interview with a, uh, a buddy of mine um, who's a recruiter and uh, he was like, oh, you know, if they do the phone mock call, start with, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? And I remember after my mock call, you came up to me, you're like, how did you know about did I catch you at a bad time? Did you talk to someone that worked here before? I was like, no, I just need to, need to say that. And I think that like got me further in the interview process just because I knew that one phrase. Um, but yeah, initially, I think after you and I had talked, I had still like this concept of like in my mind, I was going to be some sort of like people capital, um, human capital consultant, um, or something. I was looking at like entry level roles at Deloitte and stuff for, for that type of field. And, um, and I just remember being like, you know, I'm going to, we were going to, uh, spend a, a week at, um, Outer Banks. And I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go think about it for a week and think about which, what I want to do. I'm going to let you know. And I think you thought that I was like, oh yeah. Like, you know, whenever you get like, send me an email or something. Like, I think you think I, I thought I was blowing you off or something, but I really did like take a week to meditate and like think on it and sit on it. And, um, after a week, uh, my gut told me, for some reason or another, like, this is the, this is the way to go. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a, a lesson. Um, what I learned there and what I had tried to do at the time, which I still to this day try to tell. And I think, um, what, you know, anytime I have a mentor um, that wants to work with me with career development, I tell them never take a job just for money. Like don't follow the cash, try to play, chestnut checkers with your career and think about the skills and the people you meet, the connections you make, the things that are transferable and make you more employable um, and the lessons that you learn rather than just the short-term pain gain calculation. Absolutely. I remember Chris and I talking about you saying, look, we can't let this guy go in the HR. No (laughs) No disrespect to the HR professionals out there, but he just... And, but, but it's funny and we'll get to it because you, you're a care of people like yes. in, in, in a good way. Like you care a lot about doing the right thing by, by, by all, all parties. And sometimes people get it twisted in sales folks that sales folks just care about their commission checks, but the right ones who play the long game understand that's not how it really works. And I think part of working, working for us, or particularly the, the, the type of job that we have people do, and we'll get to that early in their career. I mean, this, the memory loop game is a, is is a, is that you're playing the, the the long game, you know? Absolutely. You're not you're not doing it solely for the sake of hitting your number for the month. 
Yeah, no, it's that Simon Sinek starts start with why, like, why are you here? Why are you doing this? What is your goal? And I think that's anytime someone is struggling with motivation to do their job, like as someone, that, if I'm managing them and, and if they're not doing well, or if, um, you know, there's some, anyone who is questioning whether or not they can be successful in their current role, I just try to tell them to think like two, three steps ahead and be like, okay, crushing your current job is just the table stakes for whatever promotion path or future your career path. Let's say you want to go into sales operations or marketing or whatever it is, uh, wherever organization you're at, like you need to crush your existing jobs to show you're a true professional and can be relied upon before you're even going to be considered for other roles. And so I try to like put the carrot in front of them. That's like two or three steps ahead rather than what, you know, the pain that they're in now and the suffering that they have to go through now. It's, it's all about what doors is this going to unlock for me in the future? That's great. So looking back, what advice would you give yourself the night before you started at Memory Blue? You are sitting next to future VPs of sales. Like every interaction that you have, like build a network, build a coalition of colleagues that you're going to rely on for the rest of your career. I think if I had spent... Um, I was very driven and very competitive, um, but, but I, I wish I had spent a little bit more time um, fostering those and nurturing those relationships even more than I already do, which I still do to a very large extent. Just make sure that like every day is a, is a job interview at, at Memory Blue. Like every, your effort, your attitude, the connections you make, the, the work that you put in to showcase your skills to your peers, like your peers will remember you. And that's without question. Yeah. Who were some of those peers? Yeah, I mean Richard Reese, uh, Andrew Bass, Richard Reese, me, Sam Andrew Johnson, Bass. Sam yeah. Johnson, Sam Johnson. <laughs> yes, I remember my first day. Uh, I was so nervous, and uh, I was on the phones for a day. And um, I think Sam did this on purpose because he's he was such a good person. But he leaned over to the person on the other side of him and he, and he pointed at me and said, this guy's going to be good. This guy's good. And I think he did it to give me a little confidence boost after my first day. But I heard him and I was like, oh, shit, I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and that's what you need. You need you need people that will encourage you and um, will get you through those hard times. And uh, you build you know, your band of brothers, so to speak. There you go. That's great. Uh, I always like to uh, tell, and then this is, you, you, you said it very profoundly, new hires, they should care the most about not, not impressing their manager or their clients or Mark or me, but we, we want to be impressed. But the most important people to impress are the SDRs because in a year or two or five, they're all, all going to be scattered throughout the industry, all accelerating and do well and some of those folks are going to, you know, everyone always asks people, who do you know who can ball out and you want to be the person they think of? Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, and that's how, you know, like you're at the right place when you look around you and you're like, damn, uh, every single one of these people are all as good as me or pushing me to be better. And, uh, and that's, that's when magic happens. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How did you get good? Right. Cause none of us, you, you know, I don't believe Personally, that salespeople are, are born. I think they're made. There might be some traits you have that might help you in some areas, like selling those the, the lollipops or the popsicles, whatever it was. Yeah. But I think there are lots of things you we all have to learn. 
And some of the things that make us strong may actually hold us back a little. The things that hold us back a little might actually make it a little bit stronger. But what, what was it like for you learning and what did you learn there? What yeah. can you remember? I think one of the important lessons that my life has taught me is that, um, and this started out as a very young child, I would move around a lot. And, and every time I would move to a new school, I'd figure, I just want to fit in. I just want to like not be picked on. So I, uh, I would figure out like who the coolest kids are or who the most popular kids are, and then just look and feel and sound and do what they do to try to fit in. And then when I got to the working world, um, I realized that I just need to do the exact same thing with the top performers of any company. I just need to go and study them and like, what are they saying? How are they saying it? What tactics are they using? How do they think about things? And of course, bring your own flavor and your own own style and pizzazz to it. Like you're, you are your own person and your personality should shine through. Um, and uh, And I think for me, like, um, I bring some unique elements to the table, but, um, but what are really, they? What are they? Um, I think, I think it's a combination of like intellectual horsepower and emotional intelligence. It's like those two things. It's like, just be curious enough to read and try to get better, uh, and learn about your industry. And, um, and then also like just read people, know people, know psychology, emotion, and um, how to read a room, how to figure out who's the decision maker just by through analyzing posture um, and the way people look at each other and what emotions they're conveying when you, you know, drop the price and uh, whatever, you know, very, very like just emotional intelligence EQ stuff, as well as the intellectual horsepower to be at the top of your game in whatever industry you're, you're practicing in. Um, and, uh, and those two things, I think, uh, in addition, for me personally, in my role, um, I, and I think what has led me to the most success is creative data analysis, um, is specifically in a role where you're managing existing clients in software and services, in digital media and marketing, like I'm in, um, analyzing the data of whatever you're delivering and trying to craft that within a narrative or story um, that highlights both successes and areas of opportunity for clients, um, but you're doing it in a compelling way that's ROI driven, that's data driven, um, that it, you know, makes it, you know, at the end of your presentation, it should just be very obvious, um, you know, what the end result of the partnership was, and it, they would, they'd be fools not to double down their investment. Um, and that's because I'm currently in a farming role, um, where I'm working with enterprise clients, growing existing clients, doubling, tripling their spend, um, in certain cases, uh, over the course of one or two years. I will tell you, um, though you were, you talked about kind of learning and picking things up from people, but there are a couple things that you um, that you were known for that you did exceptionally well. Do you remember what some of those were? Um, I know. I think the one thing that that led me to the most success, specifically at Memory Blue, was this particular twist on our strategy uh, of our sheet music, where I uh, started every call by trying to think of and tailor the conversation towards three specific pain points that I knew based on the uh, the role of the person I was speaking with. So, uh, you know, we think we turned it the upfront a la carte, uh, but after like a short elevator pitch of like who I was and why I was calling, I would just be like, hey, typically when I'm talking to a person in your role, insert title here, we're usually concerned with helping them do X, Y, or Z. And it, does that sound familiar? Am I barking up the wrong tree? And I would just start every call with that. And usually, 
really I would, I would, you know, then this goes back to doing your research and knowing who you're calling. I would know for fact that one of the three things would hit and that's how I'd start a conversation, earn the right to start a conversation. You, that's what you were, mo- one of your things you were most well known for in terms of like, this guy's got some game and it seems very basic, but that's the whole being curious about their role and being smart enough to connect the dots that these are the things this person in this role at this co- type of company might, might care about. Very small, tiny, like just, uh, you know, psychological change in approaching the call um, led to some of my mentees who were having like pretty uh, tough times with certain very difficult accounts. Remember who your mentees were? Yeah, uh, Christian Mori. Um and uh, Michael Breslin, um, Breslin, I believe, uh, for a while uh, with Infoceps. And uh, yeah, I think for a brief time, Nelson Amade as well. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, uh, but but that was at the tail end of my time. And uh, yeah, I think like before before I came on the account uh, with Infoceps as well, I think there had been a lot of folks that struggled with that account. And that tiny change um, opened up uh, my particular floodgates anyway for that account. Yeah. So, so, and you're saying like trying to make sure I, you personalize and connect the dots with your, your sheet music. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like not just accepting whatever the previous rep was running, like make your own play and get creative or care enough to figure out what's working and what's not working and make changes to your game plan. Um, and, um, invest the time in like I would come in on Sundays for like maybe three or four hours um, and just like do research, figure out who I'm going to call that week and have like more, customized more tailored talking points for you know the people that i was uh, inserting into my cadence that week memory blue alumni is your company actively trying to fill open sales roles with high achieving ballers the memory blue rising stars program is a unique outplacement service designed to benefit our alumni and our tenured sales development professionals at the same time Most of the SDRs that work on our client campaigns are under contract for a specific amount of time. Once the SDR's contract expires, he or she may wish to explore various new career opportunities. We call these well-trained hustlers our rising stars, and this is where you come in. Every single member of our alumni network has full access to hire our rising stars into their current company at zero cost. Whenever we have a new rising star available, we'll drop our full alumni group an email letting you know about the opportunity. This benefit gives alumni and their current employers a huge edge in closing the sales development talent gap. It also gives you the inside track on cashing in any referral fees associated with referring new hires. If you're looking for tomorrow's sales stars today, head over to memoryblue.com alumni. I put on the highlight film of, of, of the history of memory blue and like the, the, the craziest plays of all time. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're probably the, the highlight of them all. And uh, if you could share with our listeners, the move that you used to uh, sprinkle in every once in a while. I, I really only did this like a couple times. And uh, this is someone I was driving a really difficult time getting through, uh, particularly stubborn EA who wouldn't let me through. Um, and, uh, you know, gatekeeping hardcore. And uh, so I just decided to take a different approach. I, I called and uh, I said, 
hey, you know, this is uh, something I heard on a, on a Costigan tape like years, years back. And I was like, okay, um, and uh, I'm going to just try this, see what happens. It's a way for essentially the gatekeeper to assume that you are a high level position of equal uh, or greater importance to the person that you're calling. So I call uh, and, I was, and they pick up the phone and I said, hey, we start the conversation quickly and they ask me who I want to talk to. And I literally just say, hey, can you hold on for just one second? And I fake like I'm, I'm uh, putting the phone down for a second and I yell so that they can still hear me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got, uh, you know, I'll take care of that real quick. I'll take care. Oh, you need me right this second. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I got a fire to put out. I'll call you right back. And, uh, and hang, hang up the phone. And this poor EA is probably like, well, who the hell is this person calling? And then you call back 30 seconds later. Um, and they, you know, and they actually put me right through just thinking that like, Hey, I actually, and then you call back with a very stern voice, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, um, actually is Mike available now? Can I talk to him now? And <laughs> I got through one time. Was, oh man. But yeah, it was not something I would do on a regular basis. I don't generally like to, uh, approach setting meetings with any sort of deception involved. Uh, but man, making $200 a day for months at a time, you, you need to throw some things in there to keep yourself sort of entertained and motivated on the days where you're like, uh, especially on the days where you'd play hurt, you know, you always have to be able, you could party, but you got to play hurt the next day. And so to get yourself through that day, besides pounding the Red Bull, you also might have to play some my games with yourself to get through. Uh, yes. I mean, look, the, for the listeners, you know, I would recommend not trying that at home without the <laughs> advice or of a professional, you know, stunt car driver or, or, or race car driver. And that was a, a generally endorsed um, technique, <laughs> but, 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 uh, our Ash would execute that flawlessly. I mean, it was amazing. And I know you did it do that all the time. You kind of did it kind of how, when you said, okay, I'm doing this today. I'm just having one of those days. I'm going to do the fireman. And, and, <laughs> and, and it was, it was epic. So let's, let's kind of transition to, so you're in the job. We talked about this a little bit when we just, just kind of, when we kind of huddled up before you, you get good at, at getting on the phone and exercising your, your, you know, your voice, your ability to speak, to get people who you never thought you could get, before to do things, I, I usually take a meeting. I remember you talking about how, you know, that kind of helped your appetite for risk because you said, well, how risky is it really if I can do these things that, you know, you kind of believe, you start to believe more, right? Exactly. Yeah. The skill set that you pick up um, and it's really all about being like consultative and having the confidence that you are really trying to just help someone on the other end of the phone. And just the the skills that you pick up at Memory Blue, the confidence that you gain, the, you know, the the thick skin that you develop after, you know, a year of making $100, $200 a day, um, you start to feel like, man, I could pick up and call anyone. I can um, really get anyone to do, you know, anything as long as it really makes sense that it's in their best interest. And, um, and I can start to learn how to convey that it is in their best interest. And, um, but really more than anything, um, you know, I think I started to take that skill set and apply that and uh, try to get to the next level. I wanted to get into a field closing role uh, as soon as possible. Um, I specifically, even though I was like good on the phones and started to get, um, you know, I, I really wanted to be in an enterprise sales role as fast as possible because that, that territory account manager role that when I was in that HR intern, that was a field sales role. And I was like, okay, I know I want to get to that level. Um, so on one of my accounts, um, 
and InfoSeps, I actually had the opportunity. I set a meeting for you know a um, you know senior executive level uh, meeting in person at Dallas Fort Worth Airport. We had the chance to go fly down for that meeting. My rep was uh, going to go fly down and have that meeting in person. So I asked to come along, paid my own way, and. Um, and uh, went to go down and had the meeting and I got in this like nice fancy suit. I got in like the, I went to go like spent, blew all my savings on a nice fancy crisp shiny suit and uh, a nice really expensive suitcase that I probably couldn't afford and would never use again. But I definitely, I just wanted to look the part so bad and I wanted my client to see that I could play the part and like be, I wanted to be like visualize me in that role full time and um and see me perform not just look good but also like perform in the meeting like lead the meeting to a certain extent ask questions um take notes but also try to interject in a certain way recap the previous conversation set the table for him um and uh and help make that meeting the best use of his time that that, that type of stuff is what uh impresses chris and i so much like that sort of initiative and we've talked about it on some of these podcasts with nelson amade how he got down to interview with us let's unpack what you just said for a couple of minutes. So one is, you know, you were willing to pay for your own way to fly to the sales call to get the experience necessary to, you know, convince the client, right? One of these yeah. things is you want the client to kind of see you or whoever's your manager is, you want them to envision and see you in the role that you're aspiring to by you flying down there on your own dime. And I remember you asking me and I said, yeah, you can go on there and but we're not going to pay for your flight down there. You say, no, I'm not. That's yeah. Yeah. I'm paying for it. I'm paying for it. And then yeah, not a you know, question. I'm not taking any credit for the suit in the suitcase. That was probably <laughs> one, of those, one of those movies you were watching in Sweden. One of those 1980 movies <laughs> that, that, that inspired you to like get the big silver suitcase. I was like, oh, you, dude, that's all you, man. I'm not good. <laughs> but I, but I remember talking with you about, all right, if you get the meeting, here's, well, if he shows up, because I remember even talking to me when you were down there, like, are you going to set the table? Is, is Rohit going to set the table? Or how do you want to do the call, the, the meeting? Like, we were kind of rehearsing, yeah. rehearsing it a little. A lot of people will do that. Yeah, it's it's about going the extra mile. Um, and I think that's um, the cool thing and the great thing is like this is the opportunity that people shouldn't be wasting like at these tech startups there's not a lot of structure and so you could go from zero to 100 super quickly there you don't need to be an sdr at the company that you go to, like you could find uh, an awesome tech company that's growing very quickly, that there's not a lot of management layers in place. And, you know, you crush it for them for like a year and you could elevate uh, very, very quickly. And if you can demonstrate that you can do things that they would pay enterprise salespeople um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do just as well, um, then you have much greater runway for success if you can elevate as fast as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, don't waste the opportunity. Like, you, and you shouldn't have to wait until someone invites you to the table. Like, you, you have to get yourself there. You have to ask for it. You have to, again, like think three, four steps ahead and figure out what's the fastest way I can get there. And if you're not asking yourself that question, you're just leaving money on the table. You're you're leaving opportunity on the table. You know, I'm not ashamed to say I'm like very ambitious and want to, um, you know, accelerate my career as fast as possible 24 seven, 365. Um, and I'm not going to wait until someone, you know, hands me the opportunity on a silver platter. I'm going to go out there and, you know, prove that I deserve it and, and show that I can 
um, perform at that high level without anyone asking me to. So what happened? You, you bet on yourself, you invested. Yeah. So I, uh, I, you know, it turned out it, it worked. <laughs> and uh, so I always say like luck is, is preparation meets opportunity. So I was able to, you know, that particular deal never closed, but uh, I was able to during my time at memory blue generate a lead with a fortune 100 energy company um, in Pennsylvania and InfoSeps actually ended up hiring me. Uh, I got placed out uh, from memory blue and uh, I actually closed that deal with the fortune 100 company um, for InfoSeps, I got a taste of like being a field sales rep. I did countless drives up and down to Allentown, Pennsylvania um, over the course of 12 months. It was like a long 12-month sales cycle. Uh, we became their sole provider for microstrategy and Informatica services. And um, uh, we, just, we just grew that account over the course of a year. And I remember thinking, okay, like now that I have my taste in enterprise closing experience and, and tech sales, um, I now want to go to the major leagues. I, my family's from the Bay Area. My dad's side of the family's in the Bay Area. I had this hunger um, to try to elevate my game to the next level. And I think um, at the time, my risk appetite was extremely high. I wanted Let's talk about to- that for a sec. Let's yeah. Because that, that, that's a clear dichotomy. So you did such a great job for us that the client and – made a move to hire you. And, you know, you did that willingly too, right? Just because the client wants to hire you. I tell the SDRs all the time, doesn't mean you have to go work for the client, but you want to put yourself in these positions to have these options, this opportunity. So you have to go work for InfoSeps, did a great job and closed a great deal for them and helped yourself, you know, obviously with support from the team, but did it. But then I don't know who said it, go West young man. But you know, you, <laughs> you've always, Chris and I always talk with folks about how we love the DC Metro area, but you know, the, the, the big leagues and high tech is in the Bay. I don't know if you remember, but in my cubicle at a memory blue, I had uh, a vision board when I was, so I was making like a hundred dollars a day. I, I needed to remember why I was doing it. And so I had a picture of a giant um, two story Spanish style house with a pool in the backyard, uh, a father and a son at a Raiders game and uh, a map of Silicon Valley with all the major tech companies logos on it and where they were. And I was just looking, I was, I had it framed in front of my phone as I was making a hundred, 200 dials, I was like, this is why I'm doing it. This is why. Um, and so I knew that as soon as I had, uh, my, you know, a foundation that was strong enough to withstand the, the deep end that I'd be thrown in, um, by going to Bay area tech, uh, that, uh, that I wanted to make that move. And so after getting, you know, after about a year and a half at InfoCeps, um, and closing a large enterprise deal, I felt ready, um, to make that move. And talk about how you made that move. Yeah. So again, like it's all based on the skills that I learned at Memory Blue. Just like I would approach um, my day job, I made a spreadsheet of uh, places and people that I was going to cold call. And uh, basically, I cold called VPs of sales in the Bay Area and, uh, and made an attack plan and said, hey, if I can get in touch with you uh, and pitch myself, just imagine what I could do for your company and your services. And, and I was very, very bold in my approach and called like cell phones of people directly. And probably like nine out of 10 told me to go kick rocks. But one gentleman, uh, one man, uh, awesome guy uh, named Sam East at ClearSlide, I uh, said, hey, if you can pay your own way to come out here for an interview, I'll take the interview. And I was like, great, I'm there. Book it. Do you have your calendar in front of you? How's Tuesday at 9 a.m.? <laughs> and I'll be there. And, uh, and he was super impressed. And I paid my own way out. I stayed with my uncle in Livermore and uh, had the interview in San Francisco 
And uh, I mean, he was he was so impressed with my background and like Sandler sales training and my balls, my sheer cojones to come out here on my own. And um, and I and I think what really, really got him excited and wanted to give me an offer on the spot was the fact that I actually asked for more. I asked for him to pay for me to move. And it's like that's absolutely bananas. Like there there's like a million AEs in San Francisco looking for a gig, you know, at any given time and for them to pay someone to go and be an AE for them is like unheard of um and so I was like hey can I get like a three thousand dollar five thousand dollar ten thousand dollar signing bonus or help me move across the country and he was like no but I love that you asked and um but I was like well how about this and that and we actually I got it I got uh, I negotiated a um uh, a portion of helping me move uh, across the country so that um that was great i mean i i and and clear slide was amazing um got my start start there dude that's amazing and you know you took these opportunistic investments in yourself and your career which were they might seem like a whole lot of money like buying a ticket to dallas fort worth on your own you, you know um paying for a ticket for an interview that you that, you know there's no guarantee certainly that you were even going to get in a job offer Fly, flying out there for that and in reality, in the big run, it wasn't, it's not that much money, especially now, if you look at the return on the investment that you garnered from this, you got promoted in steps, got into a closing role, or got some chops from closing, got, got your ass out to the Bay area in big leagues to sell for an emerging tech company, right? Just by taking these risks and spending, I don't know, less than a thousand dollars. When we, you, people spend twenty, thirty, forty-five, fifty thousand dollars a year for just for one year of their undergrad investment, potentially, I mean, exactly. it, 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 says, it says it says a lot, a lot about you. So when you made the move, you drove out. You drove out there, right? Yeah. So at the time, I uh, just uh, I'd been with my girlfriend at the time in D.C. We had met, um, uh, just moved in together. We had lived together for about nine months, almost a year, and. Um, and this is all sort of happening at the same time in parallel to my relationship getting more serious. And uh, I was like, hey, so I've always had a dream to go to the Bay Area. And uh, my wife's always been, or my, my now wife, then girlfriend, uh, spoiler alert, um, but uh, yeah, has always been very independent minded, very travel minded. So she was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'm going to try to get approval to work from home. She got the approval to work from home, and we decided, hell, we're just going to move to the Bay Area and go try something new. And so we uh, we have a uh, a sixty pound pit bull that we did not trust the airlines with, so we threw him in the back seat. And uh, I had a uh, a three series at the time and made it to Chicago in like nine hours, which if you like don't have a three series, will probably take you like twelve. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was fun. It was like we were young and stupid and just excited to try like this risky thing and. Um, and, uh, so we stopped in Chicago to see her family and I sort of fell in love with her family and the city of Chicago for, we spent a week there and over Christmas in Chicago and then continued the drive, saw the Grand Canyon, Vegas, um, and then drove up route one, um, down South, uh, up to, uh, Northern California. We actually, uh, posted up in Oakland for two years and, uh, lived in, in downtown proper Oakland for two years. And that's when, um, you know, I knew, okay, all right. She moved across the country for me, real deal, serious. And, um, and, uh, popped the question. Uh, she said yes. And, um, 
and then you know her she's from Chicago so after a couple of years in, in Oakland um, you know when, when we got engaged she said hey I want to move to Chicago back to family where we settle down um, for settling down and then I was like great I want to stay engaged so we compromised and moved <laughs> to Chicago at that time and the Bay Area was great. I mean, I think, again, like I wouldn't be where I am right now at a major tech company, Glassdoor, without having taken the risk of like jumped in head first with no idea what's going to happen. Just some random tech company in the Bay. Um, but the connections I made there and just like with once you enter the major leagues, like, again, it never stops every day, like at these companies, like it never stops being a job interview every day. Um, your performance to your peers who then go on to other tech companies, your managers that you meet that then go on to other tech companies, like they all know, they know they can separate the bottom of the pack, like in the mid middle of the pack bullshitters and the top performers, like the people who just look like they're doing well, but they're getting lucky. The people that are struggling and, and are going to wash out. And then there's the people who know what they're doing, have a system, have a process, put in the work um, and are talented on the phones and, and people can tell the difference. Right. And so the people who meet other people who then want to rely on those people moving forward in future roles, like, that's why I'm at Glassdoor now is because of the relationships I made while at ClearSlide, um, who then then continue to stay in touch and recruit you when they move into other roles. And I met a manager, a guy named Matt Warnerkey at ClearSlide, who I impressed um, and just uh, then who then moved to Glassdoor, who then recruited me to Glassdoor. Um, but I was like, actually, I'm moving to Chicago. And they're like, oh, actually, we're starting a Chicago office. And the stars sort of aligned. So I helped Glassdoor start their Chicago office. Um, about 20, 25 of us, and then grew that to around 250 people today. Wow. So, so when, you, when you look back across your sales career up to this point, what's your favorite win? Probably, I would have to say, it's probably during my time at Glass. I'm an enterprise account manager, and a part of that is um, you know, managing existing clients. And uh, I inherited a client that had had a lot of technical difficulties with our partnership, with our job advertising campaigns, and it was a Fortune 100 insurance company in Atlanta. And uh, we're spending, you know, around, I want to say, you know, mid, um, mid five figures and uh, hated us at the same time, had hated all the technical issues they had, regretted their investment in the partnership, didn't see a ton of strategic value in the partnership. Um, and uh, over the course of about 18 months, I turned that account completely around where the decision maker, uh, the CHRO knew me personally, um, we had a great relationship. I took them out to, to dinners and steak dinners and steak lunches and lobster. And um, I knew their wine order. And But more importantly than that, as you guys all know, that's all just the sort of the fluff on top of a, a healthy relationship, which was based on actually understanding their needs, delivering high ROI. And, I, and that account, when I left that account, um, they were spending mid six figures with us. And so they went from sort of, a, you know, basically three X that account um, over the course of 18 months. And how did you do it? So it was a combination of like, just really like relationship management and making sure that they under, they understood that I understood them and knew them and they had access to me directly and making them just feel like I care about them as people. Um, and um and really, like with in account management, uh, there's this concept of like the magic beans. Over the course of a year or two years, like every interaction is not a sales interaction. Like you have to add value and give more than you ask for and receive in return. So throughout the course of um, you know a, a year 
like clients have to be really excited when you call them. Like if, if they think you're delivering bad news or you're a headache to deal with, they're not going to take your calls. I try to leave one gift or a magic bean every time I interact with a client. Um, and uh, which is something that adds value to the partnership or to their life. I basically see my role as trying to get my client partner on the other side promoted, make them look like a rock star for investing in whatever services that I'm offering uh, and make them look good to their boss that they're delivering high ROI to their company and get them promoted. If I help get them promoted, then I am going to get rewarded through a larger agreement uh, or through a promotion of my own perhaps. But, um, uh, but yeah, but essentially that aspect is what really drove me to succeed with that particular account. But I think in general, um, there's also this element of like taking your hunting skills that you've acquired and applying it to a farming role that was the major driver of my overall success beyond just that one deal. Um, so I think that what I mean by that is, is that, um, you know, in for account managers versus account executives specifically, and uh, account executives, you know, hunt for new business. My role is to grow existing business. I work for digital media and SaaS company, and we have to grow the digital media spend of our clients in digital mar- you know, uh, sort of recruitment marketing advertisements on Glassdoor year over year. Um, and so the way that I do that is through a high energy, high volume Um, hunter mentality where I'm constantly looking to engage and get like my face in the place with my clients um, and try to spend as much time with as many clients as possible. Um, And that basically is the antithesis of the, you know, typical stereotypical farmer sit back and let renewals come in and talk to your clients once a year and, oh, it's an easy gig and AEs look down on AMs and, but uh, I, Newsflash, AMs make just as much money as AEs. And it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it, it's a different game for sure. It's, it's less about the volume and, and volume and high energy is important, but it's also about the quality of the interactions. Um, as an AE, you have 10 meetings and if three of them go well, you, you bat 300, you're an all-star. Uh, as an AM, you have 50 clients and if one of them doesn't renew, your year is effed. Like you are screwed. <laughs> So it's, it's about the quality of the interactions you have with those 50 accounts that you're managing versus, you know, the volume game of, uh, of, an, of an AE. But within those 50 accounts, you have to constantly be finding new people to talk to, new angles to approach, um, new storylines to be able to tell them, um, and analyzing their performance data, whatever it is that you can analyze that's data-driven, um, to, to showcase that, hey, this partnership is going well, uh, the proverbial chart is going up and to the right at all times. And if it's not, you know why and you are adding value to the partnership by fixing it or offering additional uh, solutions to address it, uh, X, Y, Z. So essentially magic beans and hustle, hunter mentality. Yes, hunter mentality, farming role, and add magic beans every time you talk to someone. So, you know, there's an expression or saying that what, uh, what is uh, scarce is incredibly valuable. I'm telling you from my experience with account managers, very few have that hunter mentality and are adding that magic beans. So I, that, and how it, it's, it's worked well for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, uh, I've been promoted uh, three times in four years um, and into the highest uh, level of enterprise sales uh, and also uh, have had the opportunity to manage folks. And um, I, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's the same thing that we were, I think, you know, memory blue was doing 
um, 10 years ago. It's Moneyball. It's figure out what other people aren't doing and do that. Um, I think uh, you guys were doing, you know, uh, you guys invented the SDR category as far as I'm concerned. Like before, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, there were no SDRs. And that's what we were doing back then. We were doing things that are industry standard now. We were doing them 15 years ago. You guys were doing them, right? You guys were teaching us um, how to do the things yeah, that man. are industry standard now back then. Um, and so it's, it's the same thing. It's try to figure out what, uh, what's the one, you know, one to 10% of the top performers, what are they doing that nobody else is doing and do that. There you go. Yeah, I do the call shadowing, you know, you got to do the blitzing, got to do the call reviews. That's how you get better. That self-analysis, right? Breaking down game film. You guys were doing game film about uh, 20 years before gong came around. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you keep your skills sharp? Good question, man. Believe it or not, like I still listen to John Costigan and Guru Ganesh. Like to this day, I still have that, um, you know, on in saved in a Dropbox actually. And when I the first time, um, the first time I managed a team, I took basically like core concepts from from that um, from those books and trained my team on it. Like that's like where I start with any any time I inherit someone that. Uh, either a mentee or uh, someone, a direct report, um, one of the first things I have them do is study the concepts of Sandler sales. Um, read, you know, the 21 rules of Sandler. Um, try to get exposed to any sort of Sandler training that's possible. Um, but for me also, it's just um, going back to the basics, going back to foundations. Like I'm not above, um, you know, going back and listening to, to, to Ganesh and Costigan. Um, and, and that's sort of, been critical throughout my entire career. But let me ask you a question about patience because it's, you don't strike me as someone who's particularly patient, which is good because when we hire people, we screen for people who aren't that patient. Cause you, if you're too patient, you're not going to, it's going to be very difficult for you to do, to, to not get the, you know, not to cover off the ball in sales. However, patience is, is a virtue. as commonly said, we've got uh, loads of, of our Asomasis who work for us now at memory blue and they're very impatient and they want to get where they want to go. But sometimes we have to say, Hey, you, you gotta be a little patient too. And you know, what, what do you have to say or kind of what's your, what's your take on that? Because I don't want to undersell it. I don't want to oversell it too, but it'd be good, good to come from someone like you with the past eight years since you, since you left, you've done all sorts of great things. Yeah. So I, I get wanting, you know, I get impatience. I remember I wanted to be like an enterprise field sales role right away. That's what drew me to InfoCeps is the ability to get in the field um, very quickly. And um, I I didn't want to be stuck in inside sales, so to speak. Um, but um, but the you got to balance it with being strategic and smart. And um, playing it slow is if it's the smart thing to do, then that's what you need to do. It's more about like playing chess rather than checkers. Like I said before, it's, um, I think you told me this, Chris, actually one of the first meetings we had is like, you know, a traditional career outside of sales in business and like marketing or operations or whatever. It's the sort of the straight linear line of progression of over time, you develop more skills, you become more valuable to a company and you get paid more, uh, a little bit extra every year, merit increases or whatever. But in sales, it's actually, Actually, you're supposed to, instead of one linear straight line, it's supposed to be these exponential jumps over time where you're making three times as much money as you did the year before. Um, and, um, and, and so you got to figure out, you know, what that move is um, and, and sort of be patient 
but also strategic and, and sort of you're impatient with making sure you're doing the right thing. Like there's n like never a bad time to stop what you're doing, reevaluate and figure out like what's a better move that I can make right now. Like do that right away. Um, but also like don't do that instinctually evaluate your options, be very smart about where you want to go. Like if you want to be in sales operations, then do really well at your job, but also build spreadsheets for people and figure out new processes and improve a Salesforce automation flow um, and do things extracurricular and be impatient about taking on projects and tasks that get you to where you want to be. But at the same time, like, stay patient and do the right thing rather than do just like what you think is the next move just out of like instinct. Um, so like if, if you are an SDR right now, let's say you want to be, um, you know, a, a sales manager one day and, and I would advise you to not actually go from SDR to SDR manager. I would advise you to do AE, enterprise AE, try to go as, as high as you can the individual contributor route first before you pivot into a leadership role so that your ceiling for managing teams is higher and you can manage higher level teams, enterprise sales teams. Um, if you pivot from SDR to SDR manager too quickly, you sort of set your ceiling. It's going to be difficult to talk to an enterprise VP of sales and say, I can manage a team of enterprise closers having never done the job. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say like be patient, but also uh, be smart uh, and be impatient about getting to the right thing um, versus, you know, just whatever's available to you now. Awesome. That's great. That's a great answer. So Arash, what's the biggest mistake that you think your former memory blue contemporaries make? That's, I would say it's kind of along the same theme. It's just like chasing the biggest base, chasing, you know, where, um, where can I make the most money right now, this next job? I think it's um, try to figure out more so than like, where can I make the most money? It's like, what, figure out like, what is the right industry? What is the right space? What is the right type of sale? Um, what type of culture do I want to embed myself in? Type of people I want to surround myself with? Figure that stuff out and prioritize that versus just, um, I just saw a lot of people going into, um, and even myself, like, you know, companies and cultures um, that I necessarily, you know, didn't see myself in long term. Um, but, um, but I, but I was drawn by just the, the high salary. Um, right. And so that, that obviously is why we're all in this in sales is to make money. But, um, I, I just, I try to tell people again, to always think about the long term and think about, um, you know, where, where this is going to take you. I think, um, uh, for me, for example, like I actually found out very quickly early on in my career that. I don't, I don't think necessarily I'm the best at talking about technology or like IT or selling switches or security or uh, I needed to be able to be passionate and intelligent about what I'm talking about. And I wanted to be able to have that come natural to me. And so even like business intelligence and data warehousing and infosets after a year and a half, I was like, man, I don't really think I'm. I can't get excited. And if I can't get excited, I can't get other people excited. I need to have like something I'm truly passionate about. And even though like it was a great experience, I got closing enterprise field sales experience. I needed to find something that I was really like passionate about that I could feel like, okay, I can throw myself in this and I know I can be more than just competent. I can be, I can excel. I can be a thought leader in the space. Um, and uh, it took me years to find that at Glassdoor where I feel like I've truly found 
um, you know, the, the things that I talk about on a sales call for Glassdoor are things that I just read about for pleasure. It, I, you know, things that I invest in time that I, um, that I spend outside of my nine to five are things like employee engagement, corporate culture, healthy leadership uh, philosophy and diversity and inclusion efforts and how to be, um, you know, a top employer. What does that mean? How do you, how do you take care of people at work? This goes back to what I was studying in college and what I found um, value in and passion. Um, and, and so being able to like, just look for that. I think the, the mistake people that people make is, is not trying to find that deeper meaning in your work um, and just doing it. For, and, and again, it's so ironic because tell that to my 16 year old self and tell me to go kick rocks. Like, you know, uh, no F you, I'm, I'm just going to go make some a shit ton of money. And it's like, no, there's more meaning than that out there for you. Um, you, you just feel like as a person, 365 degrees, like fulfilled when you're, you know, when your creativity, your passion, your heart is engaged in your work. I know that sounds super cheesy, but it's real. No, Arash, I always view you, your role that you're in now, I always view you as you don't have to go to work, you get to go to work. Hell yes, I 100% agree. I just feel so lucky that like my job is just to talk to like HR organizations about how to be a better place to work, uh, how to be a more desired and attractive place to work, and why that is cost efficient and is good business practice. Um, I think ultimately, I think maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, I'd like to, you know, uh, who knows, like uh, maybe when I retire, when I get tired of making a ton of money <laughs> and want to be like a chief diversity officer or something like that, like that would be, that's kind of where I see myself going. But, um, but I, I just, I love being able to bring that uh, to, to organizations and it's uh, it's something I'm truly passionate about. I think it's rare for people to hear that story about making money, but also doing these things that they're passionate about and trying. You're fortunate to be in that place, right? And it shows. But we can all kind of find that. And and there are some people who can do that through data, selling data warehousing and BI tools too. I mean, I, I know folks folks who do who do it that way. It's just the, you got to find your path. But you can't stop hustling. You can't stop improving your craft. You can't stop learning about new and unique things. And you got to have failures along the way. Where the magic happens is where you have both mm -hmm. is where like you are bringing that grind and you're, you're focused on, you know, high ROI activities for yourself and um, making every uh, maximizing your return on every hour you spend at your job. Um, but it's, combining that with a deeper level of meaning that fulfills you as a person at work um, where you can be your authentic self, make a fuck ton of money and love your colleagues, have a blast, have a supportive manager who cares about you as a person who first and foremost leads with compassion and integrity and love for you as a person to achieve your full potential. And then also you hustle your ass off and make a ton of money. Like if you could do both, like that is where like as a salesperson, 
that values these things of fulfillment as a person like if if you if, if that's bi and data warehousing if you're like my mission is to make data adoption and digital adoption at a company like if i can do that that fulfills me then more power to you that's amazing right i think this just happens to be my passion where i i love talking about culture and um how to make people feel you know psychologically safe and included um but then also bring the best out of them as a result. Well, listen, eight years later, here we are. Yes, sir. Still here. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today, Arash. We really uh, enjoyed catching up with you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. You're the man, Arash. Taking an individual's raw potential and turning them into a thriving sales professional takes the right training. That's where Memory Blue Academy comes in. Memory Blue Academy teaches participants the fundamentals of sales development and all aspects of a lead generation role, regardless of the level of professional experience or background. The course kicks off with a two-day intensive boot camp session, followed by a six-week ongoing educational program. This is the program every single Memory Blue SDR undergoes at the onset of their tenure. The curriculum covers a wide range of topics, including list building, objection handling, effective sales emails, and more. Participants will be shown how to successfully execute a diverse set of sales activities in a very short time, experiencing tangible and lasting skill growth. To learn more and sign up for a seat in an upcoming session, head to memoryblue.com academy. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beat.